all is quiet on New Year's Day. The world is wild, it's underway. Hey there, folks. This is Rich Outfield, and I've got some terrible news for you. So brace yourself. You're listening to the Rich Outcast. <sighs> okay, so I've got a, a fairly long drive ahead. Can't decide whether I should stop and eat and then podcast or go ahead and podcast and reward myself with food afterward. Well, you know what? I'm going to let you decide. If I should uh, podcast on an empty stomach, press one. If you would like me to make food my priority, press two. Okay, the votes have been tallied and it looks like I am going to go hungry. So we've got a super short episode today. <laughs> I still win. Um, it is a miserable, miserable spring day. I know that sounds like a misnomer. There's a book that came out that George R. R. Martin wrote. It came out posthumously in 2031 called A Dream of Spring. It was all about, you know, just this winter has been going on a long time. What are we going to do? But spring, spring is coming. I had no idea that this, that spring could feel like this. It's so gray and so dark and so rainy and so cold. And it really has been all week. But oh well, you and I are together. We'll keep each other warm. I'll try and uh, maintain a positive attitude. It may not be warm and sunny outside, but it can be warm and sunny in our hearts. So, okay, this episode, if I get it out when I'm planning on getting it out, is hitting in the summer of 2019. And I'm going to present my novella New Year's Day. And at this point, I don't know if it's two episodes or three episodes. I meant to look before I left and see how long the recording was. Because if it's like over 90 minutes, I think it's safe to say, okay, that's a three-parter. But if it's like 78 minutes or something like that, then I don't know that I can quite justify three parts. And I'm going to uh, let you in on a little secret. This is the second episode I'm recording for New Year's Day. I had planned on recording either the two or three episodes, however many there ended up being, the first time I went to the family cabin in May, May 2019. But because the weather had been so miserable, what's rain here is snow up at the cabin and it's still completely inaccessible. There are still several feet of snow, like feet of snow. So the only way to get to the cabin is on skis. And uh, there is kind of a romance to the idea of going to the cabin when it's covered in snow and, you know, the, the level. My uncle snowmobiled up there and he told me the, that the snow was up to the deck. And the deck is high enough that 
I don't think you can touch it from the ground. So we're talking a, a 10 feet or more of snow. And the idea of that, of being in a cabin and looking out the window and it's just gray snow packed up against the window, that sounds really cool. But it's also super cold and, like I said, really difficult to get there. I'm trying to think of how you would have electricity because we've got solar power there. I guess the sun still shines. I, anyway, I've never done it. I've never gone up in the winter or you know before the thaw. And I think last year at this time, we had already gone up. It was probably drier or warmer. So I realized that if I was going to get the episodes out when I had planned, then I had to sit down and record them now. I couldn't wait until I go to the cabin. I, I still had this idea of doing a daily marathon in July of episodes where, you know, I do a week's worth of episodes, one each day, and I would sit down and record them all when I went to the cabin the first time. And I think that's still doable unless it stays weather like this for, you know, three weeks. And I, I totally missed that deadline. But, but really only my Patreon supporters know that that is my plan. So the vast majority of the threes of people that listen to my show won't know that I promised to do something and then I let them down. If you would like to be among the select three, come over to patreon.com forward slash Rish Outfield and support me. You can do a dollar an episode and you get new content every month that nobody else gets and um, you get my thanks. And that's worth so much more than money. So anyhow, what we're going to be presenting is the first installment in New Year's Day. This is a story set in high school, and I want to say that it's set in the year 2002, and I wrote it in 2003, 2004, so it was not that long ago. It was not dated in those days. Uh, we'll talk more about that on the other side, I think, uh, or in the next episode. But I hope you enjoy part one of All is Quiet on New Year's Day. I will be with you again. Come on, fake Sean. I will be with you again. I will be with you again. Hey, that sounded pretty good, fake Sean. Gosh, it did. New Year's Day. Written and narrated by Rish Outfield. 1. As mild as October had been, the leaves were still falling, and there was a smell in the air that only came around that time of year. Pumpkins lined the front displays of the Albertsons and Food for Less, orange streamers decorated the junior high's halls, and ghosts, murderers, and aliens seemed to be on every television channel. Britt Peterson was no huge fan of Halloween. It had always seemed to be more of a boy's holiday. But as the end of the month approached, it was on her mind more and more often, 
and she got it into her head to write a uniquely special article for the holiday. As head of the journalism staff, she didn't really have carte blanche when it came to the school newspaper, but Mr. Blocker certainly gave her more leeway than any other ninth grader. Britt took the tomahawk very seriously, from making sure its contributors made their deadlines to answering the monthly advice column questions personally. She'd made it a habit the year before to circle and count every typo that made the tomahawk, and prided herself in the fact that there were none to be found since she was made editor. Hers was one of those western junior highs where ninth grade was not yet high school, and high school was only three years. But a lot of Nebraska school districts were like that. The school's mascot had been the Braves since black and white days, but after this year, it was being changed to the Badgers. Apparently, Braves weren't politically correct anymore, even though no Native American had ever lodged a complaint. In honor of this soon-to-die tradition, Britt wanted to do something brave for Halloween. She thought she'd interview the county sheriff and a member of the volunteer fire department, but one of the deputies had drunkenly shot somebody in the arm during the deer hunt, and Mr. Blocker suggested she come up with something else. Britt did come up with something else. Something better. Something historical and perfect for the October 30th edition of the Ridgefield Tomahawk. Britt Peterson's two best friends were boys. Britt was 14, two days younger than Dave Earl, and a good five months older than Rob Schaefer. She was tall and rail-thin, all knees and elbows. Puberty had given her inches, but not much else. Except for her fine cheekbones and pouty mouth, she might have passed for a boy. It didn't help that she had her chestnut hair cut in a monkey's-style mop-top a decade or two late. To Rob, that didn't matter. He loved her face, the way her nose came to a point, her slim waist, and her big brown eyes, as huge as a character in an awful cartoon from Japan. He loved her voice and the way she smiled. He didn't care if she never got boobs. It increased his chances if she didn't. Dave had also noticed her lack of breasts, but in a casual, subconscious way. He barely saw her as a girl, and when he did, it was in the way he'd see a sister, if he had one. Sure, he recognized the way she sometimes looked at him, but all the girls did, at one point or another. He was blonde, muscular, tall and freckled, with bright green eyes Lauren Mangelson once said, during a forced Valentine's Day dance, were like diamonds. As if there was such a thing as green diamonds. Nah, Dave could have his pick of the girls in the 8th or ninth grades, and he'd pick awful, double-retainer-wearing Lauren Mangelson to be his girlfriend before he'd choose Britt. Britt was aware of this, just as she was aware of how much less pretty or womanly she was than the other girls. It bothered her, certainly, but not enough to ruin her life. She could play soccer better than any other student, and could outthink, outmath, or outright any of the beauty queens in her school. She preferred the company of boys anyhow, had ever since she'd moved into town and met Robin Schaefer, and long before she found Davy Earl to be handsome. Future Jane Polly slash Connie Chung, Britt Peterson sat in the desolate school cafeteria with Dave and Rob, 
the smell of slightly overcooked baked beans still floating about. She often bounced ideas off her friends, and was now showing them what she had so far on her October cover story topic, the dreaded Lemley House of Ridgefield, Nebraska. The Lemley House was on the old side of town, with a huge fenced-in yard and at least five acres attached to it. Not particularly scary-looking, and with a barely frightening history to it, for some reason it had been chosen as the local haunted house by schoolchildren. Nobody lived there anymore, and it settled and grayed with each passing year. Since its owner, Curtis Lemley, wasn't yet dead, the town could do nothing about it, not fix it up, tear it down, or make anything of the property. There it sat, moldering, inspiring bad dreams, and producing myths and legends faster than any grim brother. Kids proved their valor by scaling its fence by day, or throwing rocks at its windows by night. There was even a stupid elementary school game where a girl had to kiss any boy who dared touch the doorknob on Valentine's Day. Britt read aloud from her work in progress. William Lemley, local industrialist, was a millionaire by the time he was thirty, and beloved of the whole town. By the time he was forty, he was dead. There was a football game that night, and most of the student body had gone to the pep assembly in the gym, leaving the trio to share a Pepsi on the uncomfortable plastic tables where they typically ate their lunch. How about by the time he was forty, he was a corpse, Rob suggested, his brows raising. Hmm, I thought my own version was a little bit stupid, Britt said. I'll change it to, he never reached forty, as tragedy struck without warning. She smiled as she wrote it. Even though many articles had been written about the Lemley House, there was even a chapter about it in a juvenile little book called Nebraska Nightmares the library kept on its back shelf. It felt like Britt was writing something new and important. It felt good to create, to spin words into unique orders and clever combinations. She read on, Going suddenly mad, he killed his wife and daughter, his maid, and himself. Only the maid made it out of the house, dying of blood loss. She crossed something out and rewrote on her paper. Bleeding to death before she could tell her tale. Only four-year-old Curtis Lemley survived, found in blood-stained pajamas and giggling uncontrollably by police. Did they really say giggling uncontrollably? Dave wondered. What does that mean? That he couldn't stop himself or the police couldn't control it? Both, I guess, Britt said. He was crazy from then on. Dave grunted, and Britt went back to reading. Bouncing from one foster family to another, Curtis was so disturbed by the incident that he spent most of his life in mental institutions, where he lives on today, an old man with a child's mind. The richest guy in the loony bin, Rob asked, but regretted it. Nobody said loony bin anymore. She continued, Even though the electricity has long been off, the neighbors claim to have seen lights on inside on rainy nights. She looked up from her printout. 
Should I mention the neighbor by name, or is it better without? Better without, Dave said. At the same time, Rob said, Give their names. Britt nodded and went on. It is said that music can sometimes be heard from the Lemley house at night, and that pets will enter it and never come out. Rob spoke up again. I've heard that if you go to the gate on a Friday the 13th, you can see the faces of the dead looking out at you from the windows. Really? That struck Brit as particularly disturbing. Haven't you heard that? Nope. I'll have to put that in there. Rob beamed, happy to have contributed. In honor of Halloween, I represented our school pride by going where no brave has gone before, into the Lemley House, to explore and report. Wait, Dave said, squinting. When did you do this? Well, I haven't done it yet. That's pretty much all I've written. I'm going to the house tomorrow. Rob whistled, intrigued. Dave seemed a little less so. No way. You don't dare. Not for the newspaper. Not for a thousand dollars. Not even for a Valentine's kiss. You might be surprised, Britt said, then giggled. She went a bit red and changed the subject. No, seriously, I'm going there tomorrow. I think it would impress people. It impresses me, Rob couldn't help but say. Why don't the two of you come along? Britt asked like it just came to her, even though that had been her plan from the beginning. What? The three of us. You can take pictures, and Dave can, I don't know, carry the flashlight. Dave recoiled slightly. Flashlight? You're going at night? Dude, are you crazy? Britt had expected Dave to volunteer, to sneer at superstition, a macho display of bravado, something. But with a single comment, he effectively shattered her illusions. If he was this hesitant, how could she go in there by herself, in the dark? What was she thinking? No, she muttered. During the day, instead of fourth period. She pretty much had that hour free anyway, so it wasn't entirely a lie. I'll go, Rob offered, before he got a chance to change his mind. Be nice to get a picture of a ghost. You'll get a picture of your own peed pants, Dave muttered. I'm surprised you'd be scared, Britt said to him, not quite ready to let him off the hook. I'm not. You sure? I have history, fourth period, he said quickly. We're watching the second half of Glory. The South wins, Britt said. Now you don't have to be there. Look, I'd love to go poking around a shitty abandoned house, inhale dust, step on a rusty nail, get bit by a baseball-sized spider, but I'm going to pass. Fine, pass, Rob mumbled. Dave looked at Rob flatly, then back at Britt. I'm not afraid. Britt couldn't help but smile. Nobody said you were afraid. Dave was scowling now. I have to admit, though, Britt said, hoping she sounded sincere. Now that you mention it, it might get a little freaky in there. She went in for the kill. I'd feel safer having someone to protect me. I'll be there, Rob said in a small voice. 
She wasn't hearing him, though. She was watching Dave crack. Just in case. Dave fidgeted. Look, he began. If I get you out of U.S. history, will you come? Britt asked. He knew she had pull with the English and math teachers, but as far as Dave knew, Britt didn't even know Mrs. Meldrum. It would be quite a feat to get him out of class for some unauthorized holiday-themed science experiment. Well, sure, he said, hoping she wouldn't pout and demand he slough class when her plan didn't work. Okay, deal, she said, reaching out and giving his sleeve an affectionate tug. Two. Rob was also on the journalism staff. Most days, toting around the camera, Mr. Blocker kept locked in his desk. He wasn't much for writing. He'd last enjoyed an English class somewhere around the third grade. But he had a positive attitude and wasn't afraid of hard work, especially the kind that never got recognized. He'd taken a few pictures at school sporting events, including one of the star forward being fouled in the private parts that was so utterly priceless and hilarious that it was a crying shame it would never see print. Mr. Blocker seemed to think Britt Peterson was the reincarnation of, well, some famous woman reporter, since in 2001 Barbara Walters was not yet dead, and Lois Lane didn't technically exist. She had him so wrapped around her finger that she could probably let an article see print with the F-word in it and not get in trouble. Not that she would, since her squeaky-clean reputation was entirely based on fact. Rob had watched her work her magic on their teacher time and time again, not without a little jealousy, so it didn't much surprise him that she got Blocker to write a pass for Dave to get out of U.S. history to help with the story. Dave himself was considerably more surprised. Ten minutes into Morgan Freeman and Matthew Broderick, he was able to pack up his books and slip out into the hall where Rob was waiting. "'What are you smiling about?' Dave wanted to know. I'm not sure. I guess I'm just excited. Dave shot Rob a pitying glance. Excited about what? We're not going to find anything. Rob held Dave's books while he turned the combination on his locker. He wondered if he dared speak his mind. But Dave was his best friend, after all. This feels like an adventure or something. Like I'm accompanying a team of explorers into the unknown the beautiful researcher and her tough-guy guide on a dangerous mission into uncharted... Beautiful researcher, Dave repeated. Is somebody else going besides you and Britt? The girl in question was coming down the hall toward them, buttoning up her jacket and wearing a delighted expression, not unlike Rob's. Just as Dave jammed his books in the locker and slammed it closed, she grabbed them both from behind in a half-hearted embrace. Rob jumped a little, but if Dave was startled, he didn't show it. They walked toward the exit in front of the gymnasium. You guys scared? Britt asked. No, Dave said, scoffing more than was actually necessary. I am, Britt said, her expression becoming a grin that rapidly infected Rob Schaefer. She held out the signed pass to him. You left this in class. Whoops he said, taking it from her. If they ran into the janitor, or worse, the vice-principal, uncontrollable bleeding would be preferable to not having a pass. 
thanks. She nodded, not at all put out. So, let's get going, huh? Since none of them had driver's licenses, it would take quite a while to make it to the side of Ridgefield, where the Lemley house was located. Britt didn't allow for any dawdling, and glared at Dave when he stopped to sip from the drinking fountain. She had not come unprepared, toting a backpack complete with a notepad, a mini tape recorder, blocker's camera, two flashlights, and a pair of gloves. As they neared the big double doors leading to the east entrance, Dave couldn't help reigning once more on the parade. You realize you're wasting your time, he asked Britt when they stepped outside. Don't you? I don't believe in ghosts, if that's what you mean. It's not exactly what I mean, but hey, I don't believe in them either. I believe in ghosts, Rob spoke up. When my grandma died, I hit... Dave snorted, having heard this story about fifty times over the years. Who was that on the phone, Aunt Margaret? He asked in a gruff, old man's voice. Oh, that was my sister, telling me she'd passed away during the night, he answered in a high-pitched, old womanly voice. Yes, Rob said, unfazed, and that's exactly what really happened. He looked at Britt levelly, then glanced at his best friend. Except her name was Aunt Heather. The afternoon outside was warm, which was welcome, the sun already dipping low in the sky this early in the day. They walked toward the old part of town, Britt setting a rapid pace that the boys had to struggle to keep up with. Two blocks later, and straying a bit behind their fearless leader, Rob spoke in hushed tones and wary half-sentences. Do you think maybe we should have gotten Mr. Blocker to... You know? Dave lowered his brow. Touch your winky? No, Rob said, still unfazed. Come with us. Be our... What's the word? Concubine? Stop it, Rob growled. You know what I mean. Chaperone? Britt asked. Yes, exactly. Plus, he might drive us over. Britt sighed in an overdramatic way. Because... Rob sensed something in that word. A reluctant admission, maybe? Because why? He picked up his pace to walk alongside her. Britt? She sighed again. A cute expression of dismay she'd probably gotten from television. Because he doesn't know where we're going. Dave wasn't all that surprised. A teacher was unlikely to let them leave the school grounds unsupervised, and one would have to be crazy to give his students leave to explore an abandoned building. No? He... I told him about the article. Just not the whole story. I said we were working on a special piece for Halloween and that I would be interviewing you about an experience with the supernatural. I think he sort of figured we'd be talking about it in the library or commons or parking lot or something. And I didn't correct him. Dave patted her on the back. Though it was a brotherly gesture, it sent a thrilling shiver through Brit nonetheless. He looked particularly cute today, his hair unkempt from the October breeze. Pretty ballsy, dude. I'm a girl, Dave, she said, frowning. So cut out the dude stuff. Rob was also impressed by her courage, but couldn't help worrying for her. For them both. But what happens after? After? After we tell him where we really went. Why would you do that? Dave asked. 
Right, Brit said. What Blocker doesn't know won't hurt him. Nice, Dave said, as if he had something to do with her newfound daring. Peterson, I'm going to come to you for all my sick forms from now on. The school had faded into the distance, and older homes now lined the streets. An elderly woman sweeping the leaves off her walk paused to look at them suspiciously. Britt wondered if she had lived there long enough to have known the Lemleys. Maybe she could interview her about them. But not now. Right now they were burning daylight. Britt gave an angelic wave, and the woman helplessly waved back. "'You know her?' Dave asked. "'Nope.' Rob was starting to look a little skittish, his hands going into his jacket pockets, then out again with nervous regularity. Britt nudged him with her backpack. "'Calm down, Robin. Mr. Blocker will think we went to the house after school or over the weekend. No big deal.' "'I guess,' he said. "'But he sure was acting odd.' "'What is it?' she asked. "'Well,' he said, wiping his palms on his jeans. "'You know what they say. "'What if there really are ghosts?' "'Dave began humming a song that sounded vaguely familiar. "'Then we'll be famous,' she said, as if that were a good thing. "'She turned to Dave. "'What is that?' It was supposed to be the Ghostbusters song, he admitted, though it might have been another song he was humming. A lot of those 80s songs sounded the same. Did it have any words besides who you're going to call? I think so, Britt said, but I don't remember. But Rob wasn't ready to let the subject go. What if the stories are true? That it's evil, that people go in and never come out? They aren't true. Dave insisted. Stop trying to scare us. I'm not. Then stop trying to scare yourself. Rob could say nothing to that. Maybe that was what he was doing, whether consciously or subconsciously. It took a while to get there on foot. They talked briefly about Halloween costumes and the upcoming lame school dance before Rob and Dave descended to arguing over who was the sluttiest girl in their school. And then they were there. Their chuckling faded as they looked up at their destination. The Lemley house stood on the end of the block, surrounded by trees and enough vacant lots to fit a second junior high. It was an aged building, faded and uncared for, seeming to Brit like an old man who has outlived all his companions and sits alone at his accustomed table, glowering at the young and vibrant. An iron fence had surrounded the property, and at some point, wood slats had been erected alongside it to prevent anyone from doing what Britt, Rob, and Dave were about to do. At the fence's center, there was a heavy wrought-iron gate that had been chained closed. Both the gate and the chain were rusting away at about the same rate. The front yard was a mass of overgrown weeds, branches, trash, and what appeared to be a gathering of every fallen leaf in the neighborhood. A much lower stretch of leaves and garbage led straight from the gate to the porch, probably covering unseen cobblestone or cement. The house was big for Ridgefield, two floors and a basement, with a chimney on each side, built between wars in a time when very few owned very much. The windows on the bottom floor were all broken, some boarded up, some covered with wire mesh. Up above, there was still glass in two of them, 
another had a pane missing, and the rest were shuttered. Some of the boards lining the fence had warped in the sun. Combined with water damage and their intrinsic cheapness, a couple were loose enough to easily push out of the way, so the trio could climb the bars. Dave offered to boost Brit up, but she leapt up the fence like a marine in basic training. Pausing at the top, she realized she should have taken him up on his offer. It might have provided her with the opportunity to grab onto him, perhaps pretend to lose her balance, and... But she hadn't been thinking, had she? She hoisted herself over the fence and dropped over the side with little effort. As soon as her feet landed in the grass, there was a stirring within. She tensed as several birds flew up from the overgrowth and toward the back of the house. Quail, they looked like. For a moment, Britt was alone in the Lemley front yard, separated from the boys by a tall, boarded-over fence. She could hear them muttering back and forth on the other side. She looked up at the house, standing alone in its cool shadow. It might have been pretty once, but it had been neglected for too long. It looked untended, weathered, abandoned. The main eave had begun to sag. A couple of bricks had cracked or fallen out. Vines had grown up alongside it and then died. From the windows, darkness dwelt, and she got an uneasy feeling. What if something was watching her from within? What if Rob's tale was true, and she looked to one of the windows, only to see a ghostly face staring down at her? Goosebumps broke out on Brit's arms and back. What if there came another rustling from the high weeds, something that wasn't birds, but a more malevolent presence, stalking out the intruder in its territory? And then Dave was atop the fence, glancing down at Brit. He looked like a movie star up there, strong, sure, there to make her safe, and she loved him despite her better judgment. Dave met her eye, and must have caught something there, because the sides of his mouth tugged upward in the beginnings of a cocky grin. Brit looked away. Dave started over the top, then turned back to check on Rob. You need help getting up the— No, Rob said, and forced another of the boards to the side so he could slip through the bars. Just climb over, Dave said though it occurred to him that his friend might not have the arm muscles to hoist himself up. I can make it, Rob said. Britt was impressed to see Rob wriggle his way through the boards and the iron bars, emerging on the other side no worse for wear, though, truth be told, he scraped his back enough on one of the boards to break the skin, and before his athletic friend. While Dave finished crossing the fence, Rob stood next to Britt, experiencing what she had a moment before, a feeling of being in the cold presence of the house, a disquieting sensation, like being in the same yard as a vicious dog. Wow, he said quietly, wondering how much of it was just the stories about the place and what was the building itself. Yeah, Britt whispered. She had been there before, but not recently, and never to seek anything out. Anything supernatural. Dave brushed off his hands and took in the house. It looked like a haunted house. He'd give it that, though the place appeared to have been built so well it wouldn't fall down for another fifty years. Pretty scary, he said in agreement. Immediately, he regretted saying it, just in case Rob started to wimp out on them. 
he realized that both Brit and Rob were using him as some sort of example of bravery and manliness, though they probably wouldn't vocalize this if pressed. He could play that part. It wasn't as though that was anything new, at least where Rob was concerned. And yes, Rob watched Dave to see if his comment was serious or not. Probably not. Probably Dave was just saying that to make him feel understood, to put him at ease. David Earle was a good guy. For not the first time, even that day, Rob wished he could be more like his best friend. It seemed like his natural tendency was to be timid and hesitant and weak, but maybe he could make a change to his basic nature. Many times lately, when placed in a difficult situation, Rob had asked himself, what would Dave do? How would he handle this? And sometimes, silly, or blasphemous, or simplistic or not, it helped. So, how would Dave react in there? How could Rob emulate that? Rob decided he would be strong, and if they did see a ghost, he'd take a picture of it first, and piss himself second. "'What are you smirking about?' Britt asked, and Rob shook his head. She patted him on the arm and said, "'Well, let's do this.' Three. They started toward the front door of the Lemley House. It was made of thick oak, with several yellow splotches across its peeling white paint. Dave and Rob knew what the stains were, but it wasn't until Britt saw the remains of eggshells near the door that she understood. "'What if it's locked?' Rob asked, and Britt exhaled sharply. She hadn't considered that. A big house like this, on the edge of town? Of course it would be locked. But how had all the people who disappeared in the stories gotten into the house then? The exploring household pets? The kids from other towns or other grades that snuck inside and saw monsters? Britt turned the knob. Dave looked around the porch. You don't want to go through a window, do you? After a bit of tension, the knob turned and the door opened. The hinges creaked like a manor in a Dracula movie. Not surprising, really. The door hadn't been locked, which was strange, considering the windows were covered and the house appeared to still have some of its furnishings inside. When Dave pressed the latch and looked closer, he saw that someone had broken the wood around the latch, so it couldn't lock. Thieves, maybe, or teenage vandals. A couple of steps later and they were inside. Dave gently pushed the door to a closed position, but didn't close it all the way. Rob wondered why he did that, but didn't dare ask. Could be that he didn't want to attract attention if someone saw the door open. But maybe he was afraid of getting locked in, or not leaving them an escape route. Dave wondered if he was the only one who was scared, but again, didn't dare ask. In reality, all three were scared. Dave had wondered if high school boys ever brought girls there for sex, and briefly flirted with the idea of trying it himself some day. But once he was inside, all thought of romance and good times fled. It was an ugly place, dirty and cold, and he felt unwelcome. He could even walk in with Justine Juggs Meza and not be able to get aroused. 
Britt wasn't sure how she would go about writing her article for the Tomahawk, but found herself acutely aware of her thoughts and feelings since departing on this little outing. She was very grateful her friends had come with her. Otherwise, she would never have made it this far. So this is it, Dave said, just to say something. Uh-huh, Britt murmured, just to respond. Though it wasn't dark enough inside the house to necessitate them, Britt removed the flashlights from her pack, handing one to Rob and keeping the other for herself. Thanks, Rob said in a child's voice, and had to fight the urge to clear his throat and say it again. He switched on his flashlight, then, when Britt didn't do the same, switched it off again. They were in a spacious foyer, with a warped wood floor and detritus strewn in every direction. Water stains marked the once pristine gray walls. A picture frame had fallen, and broken glass covered the area around it. Spider webs festooned the corners, and dried rodent pellets were sprinkled liberally across the floor, where, here and there, pieces of the ceiling had dropped. There was enough dust on everything that all traces of living things—insect, mouse, and bird—were unmistakable. But there were no human footprints. Silence reigned as they stood there, looking around the room. The wide, carpeted staircase went up into the darkened second floor. Upstairs was well-windowed, but ivy had grown up over the entire western side of the house, obscuring the light on that half. There was an ornate, carved balcony overlooking the stairs and the parlor, but it was empty. Dave surveyed all this, looking for signs of movement. He saw none. And why would he? What would be moving inside? Well, we're in, he said. Now what? Rob spoke up. We could take a picture, to prove we were here. Britt nodded. That wasn't a bad idea. After all, it would be easy to tell Mr. Blocker and anyone they talked to, I went into the Lemley house and I wasn't scared at all and I didn't see nothing, so I don't know what the big deal is, and not actually have done it. Rob had given Britt his camera and a big drawstring bag, in case there was a souvenir or valuable he could take with him. And she handed it to him now. He opened the shutter and brought it to bear on Britt's cute face. Oh, she said, get one of me and Dave. She sidled close to the tall boy, their arms brushing enough to make her heart rate triple. Rob didn't complain or argue. He took the picture without a word, but as he lowered the camera, a bit of the joy had gone out of his eyes. Britt sighed inwardly. It was always this way. Now one of you and me, she told him, putting on a big smile. She went over, quick as a flash, and wrapped her arm around Rob. She could actually feel him tense up at her touch, and her big smile got bigger. Dave stepped over and took the camera, a bit of a grin growing on his face as well. Say, Curtis Lemley, he said. Britt decided to really go for it, and put her head on Rob's shoulder just as Dave snapped the picture. Dave saw Rob's face change color through the viewfinder, and for a moment was jealous of his friend. It would be kind of nice to like a girl that much. But maybe not. Rob sure seemed miserable about it, though that probably wouldn't be the expression on his face when the picture was developed. Dave wondered if Britt would ever come around. Her taste in boys seemed sort of weird. Britt sure looked proud of herself, and it was funny. 
Maybe she should be. Good one, he said, walking over. Yeah? Rob said, his voice a little bit higher than it was before. Dave gave the camera back to Rob, then punched him on the arm. Rob didn't wince or complain, but Dave knew he wanted to. He was starting to feel glad he came. Okay, now what? he asked again. I don't know, Britt said, glancing up at their surroundings again. I guess we just look around for a minute. Why? I doubt we'll run into anything pretty in here. Let's just leave. All right, I just thought we should take advantage. And at that moment, they heard a sound. It was coming from upstairs somewhere, and it came all at once. It was like the wind, the way it sounds when it blows hard through a hollow log or a tunnel. But there was something wrong with it somehow. It was too high-pitched, too controlled. It sounded almost like a child screaming. Holy monkey, Rob whispered. What was that? Upstairs, Britt answered and started in that direction. Dave grabbed her arm before she could get very far. What? You're going up there? She glanced down at him, her eyes narrowed. Yes? Dave was tempted to pull her down, wrenching her backward like John Wayne in The Quiet Man. Instead, he let go of her arm. Why? If there is a ghost, I want to meet him. If it's just the wind... I need to know for sure. She forced herself into a heroic stance. How often do you get to walk around a haunted house? I've just been in one, and that's too many. As they stood there, the sound came again. Chilling. Long. Definitely not the wind. Dave looked down at his crotch. I'm now officially a girl he said in a barely joking voice. Rob laughed beside him, but Britt didn't get it. She mentally shrugged. Whatever the joke was, it was probably dirty. Britt started to climb again. She got halfway up the stairs when Rob called after her. Wait, Britt, don't go up alone. She turned. Are you going to come up with... But he had already started to move forward. Dave grabbed his arm this time. Sure, his friend had gone crazy. Oh, so you're going too? Rob smiled then, and Dave was impressed by the strength of it. He didn't look like pathetic little Robin Schaefer at that moment, and whoever he did look like was someone you could admire. I told you I'd follow her to the ends of the earth, he muttered. This seems like the next best thing. So Dave released his arm, and Rob rushed to catch up with Brit on the stairs. The only one left down there. Dave had little choice but to join them. Crap, he said to no one at all, then went up as well. They made it to the top of the stairs and stopped there. Only silence greeted them now. There was a long hallway on either side, and all the doors to all the rooms were closed. It reminded Brit of a hotel, ready for guests, the busy season just around the corner. She stood there, before the boys caught up, looking around the Lemley upstairs, taking it in. 
It was dark at the end of the hall, the only light there coming from underneath the closed doors. It was all too easy to imagine one of the doors opening a crack, so someone could peer out at her, a solitary eye assessing the intruder in its territory. At that moment, Rob switched his flashlight on again, casting a big gray shadow on the wall next to them. Britt's breath caught in her throat, though there was no reason to be scared. They were alone. There was nothing up here, except whatever had made that noise. I don't hear it anymore, Rob said, as if reading her mind. They gave it a couple more seconds, but the sound did not repeat itself. Maybe it was the chimney, Dave said, though he didn't believe it. Maybe, Britt said, and mentally composed a sentence for her newspaper story. I've heard characters in movies talk about feeling like they're being watched, but never actually felt that way. Until the Lemley House. Britt hadn't moved at all. They stood for a moment, waiting for something that didn't come. Britt hadn't moved at all. They've watched her, the leader of the band, and wondered if she was rooted to the spot. So, what, dude? he asked her. Do we head back? Britt looked at him, his handsome face awaiting her reply with raised brows. He was obviously concerned for her, and that felt good. It made her feel braver. People will ask us what made the sound. Rob held his flashlight with both hands. What? When they read the Tomahawk article, they'll want to know what was crying. It didn't sound like crying, Dave said. And it hadn't. Screaming was worse than crying. Britt didn't agree or disagree. She simply asked, Do you want to head back? Well, yes, Dave said. But I'm having less fun with this than you are. Britt looked at Rob. You? He shrugged. Me? Do you want to leave? Rob thought before answering. Which did he want more? To be safe? or to look brave in front of Brit. Infuriatingly, the two desires were about even. I don't know what you're asking, he said at last. You, what, want to open every door and look around? Sounds good, Brit said, taking that as an affirmative. She took a step to her left. The floorboards creaked underfoot. Some of them were termite gnawed. Still, the house was in pretty good shape for having stood empty for decades. Empty. But was it? Only one way to find out. They opened the first door together. Beyond it was a bedroom. Not a master bedroom, but a small one. Maybe a guest bedroom. They stepped inside and had a look around. There was a ruined easy chair, a vanity and a large bed, stripped of everything but the wooden frame. The room smelled less stuffy than the hall had for some reason. Dave looked over and saw why. The window was grimy and let in little light, but a perfect, baseball-shaped hole was in the glass. He looked around for the ball, but couldn't find it, and wasn't about to root around under the bed if he saw it. 
There was nothing spooky in the room, nothing living or dead. Britt turned, somewhere between disappointed and relieved. Let's each check a room, she suggested as they walked out of the bedroom. What, like split up? Rob asked, sure the girl was crazy. People in scary movies always split up, and they were crazy. Just to get this over with, she said, and that made some sense. The daylight was already fading, and there were half a dozen doors on each side of the stairs. Amen, Dave said, heading across the hall to the nearest closed door. Rob figured he was outvoted, so he hesitantly wandered away from Britt. Yell if you see something, she said, though it wasn't necessary. She opened a door and found a tiny room with a sink, an ironing board, and something that looked like a cauldron. Witchcraft, she thought. But as she stepped closer, she realized it was an ancient washing machine, the kind they used to have in Looney Tunes shorts. It even had an old-fashioned ringer, though that appeared to be broken. Across the hall, Rob opened a door and found a closet, no more than a few shelves. It had been a linen closet, but the tablecloth, sheets, and blanket that sat in it were eaten away by moths, silverfish, or whatever else destroyed clothes in old houses. A big gray spider had made its home on one of the empty shelves. Rob shivered and closed the closet door. Dave tried the next door down. It opened on a windowless bathroom. The sink fixture, toilet, and bath were in like-new condition, but there was rust around the pipes and the room smelled dank and unpleasant. The mirror had been taken from above the sink. Dave closed the door behind him. Dave, Rob said, gesturing him to join him in the little room across the hall. It had been a child's room, evident by the stars hand-painted across the walls and rocking horse in the corner. Rob eyed the horse warily, having seen enough movies to almost expect it to begin rocking on its own. When it didn't, he relaxed and decided to look around a little. Britt found nothing special in the two rooms she checked. The first was filled with files, boxes, a bed turned on its side, and several yellowed newspapers. Britt thought she'd take one. Maybe it would be neat to read the articles of the day, but the paper fell apart like ash when she touched it. She wiped her hand on her pants and left the room. The second room was completely empty and cold. A patch of ivy had grown over the window, but it had died, letting in more sunlight than the other rooms. Still, she shined the flashlight around, seeing nothing of interest. The room held no furniture, no wall hangings, no traces of humanity except for holes in the wallpaper and brown splotches like coffee stains on the floor. Though there was nothing in the room, or seemed to be nothing, something about it, perhaps its very emptiness, made her uncomfortable. She got out of there, not sure she wanted to keep exploring. Dave was right. There were other things they could be doing, and Halloween issue or no, People didn't like to be scared. No sooner had Brick closed the door than the noise came again. The high-pitched, icy sound from before, and it was coming from the empty room. She reached for the knob and recoiled. 
A shadow was moving behind the door, blocking out the light beneath it. The sound came again, like a woman wailing. Britt muttered something. A prayer? A curse? And opened the door a second time. Her eyes went wide in horror. Four. Inside the child's bedroom, Rob looked in one of the drawers. It was stiff and held only blank sheets of lined paper and a broken pencil, the huge red kind people used in the days before yellow pencils with erasers built in. Wouldn't it be cool if Thomas Lemley had a stack of comic books and they were in here somewhere, perfectly preserved? I thought you didn't read comics anymore, Dave said disappointed in his friend, but not really surprised. But these would be old, Rob said, defending himself. They'd be worth a fortune. Dave considered it. What about playboys? Those would be cool to find, and they're worth money. Rob nodded, though comics would be easier to show off to Brit. He was about to ask Dave if women in old playboys would be fat by today's standards when he heard Brit's choked cry. She was only two rooms away, but it was an endless distance if she was in trouble. He was already sprinting out of the bedroom by the time Dave said, Was that Brit? He reached the hall, started forward, then stopped, unsure of which room she had gone in. Then he heard her within one of the rooms. Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Brit was from a strongly religious family and had once told him that deity-related curses were worse than the F-word. She was in trouble. Brit! he called, and moved again toward the second door on his right. It was locked. Dave caught up with him and asked, Is she all right? Rob didn't wait to say, I don't think so. He just shoved himself against the old door, hitting his shoulder so hard his fists unclenched. The door held. Brit! he shouted again. I got it, Dave said, gently pushing Rob to the side. He kicked the door right under the knob, and it burst open with a sharp crack. Dave went fast into the room, and Rob followed, stumbling right into him as they passed through the archway. Britt was by the door, pressed up against the wall like she was glued to it. Rob started to speak, when he realized that Dave was frozen in his tracks, staring at something at the far end of the room. Rob turned his head back to the room and saw it. The hair on his arms and back of his neck shot up, and the strength seemed to drop out of his knees. Oh, he heard himself whisper. Oh, my! Rob began to scream. They burst out of the house all at once. Dave pulled ahead of them, followed by Brit. She could probably outrun him if she had to, with Rob lagging a little behind. It had begun to rain while they were inside, though it had been pretty cloudless before. Brit stopped first. She was halfway between the house's front door and the rusty, barely intact gate. Rob caught up with her, gasping for breath as he slowed. Dave made it all the way to the end of the walk before he paused, his hand on the gate, and looked back. His friends were there, sweating and hyperventilating. Rob was doubled over like he was going to puke. Why? Wait a minute. What was going on? Britt looked up, met Dave's eyes. 
and then her mouth became a little pink O. She looked back at Rob, who appeared to have just completed two marathons. "'Are you all right?' "'Dandy!' He smiled up at her from that uncomfortable position, and she couldn't help herself. She hugged him, getting sweat on her palm from the small of his back. Rob returned her hug, waiting a second too long before releasing her. "'You? I... I think so.' An expression of confusion crept over her face, matching the one Dave wore as he walked back to where the other two stood. "'This is going to sound like a weird question,' he said. "'But why were we running?' Rob shook his head. "'What do you mean? We were running from—' And he stopped. He blinked. He opened his mouth to continue, then closed it again. They had been in the Lemley house. They'd gone upstairs. They looked in a room or two, and then— "'What were we running from?' he asked at last. "'I don't remember,' Britt answered, and it was no answer at all. "'Wait a minute,' Dave said. "'We were in there. Britt, you were crying.' "'Was I?' Britt felt her face, but no sticky tears remained. Rob nodded. "'Dave and I went into the room where you were, to see if you were okay, and—' None of them finished the sentence. "'And then what?' Britt wanted to know. "'I kicked a door in,' Dave said, sounding boastful, but at the same time doubtful. "'And then I was running past the gate.' "'That's all I can remember,' Rob admitted. "'We were in the house, and then we weren't. "'I don't even remember going back down the stairs.' "'That's crazy.' Britt said, but in a stunned sort of way. That's all I remember, too. We can't all have, what, blanked out? Blacked out, Dave muttered. Like when you get really drunk. Rob shrugged. He had never been drunk, and thought beer tasted slightly worse than chilled pee, but he'd seen people in movies black out. Or like uh, amnesia? We don't have amnesia, Dave grunted. Don't we? Britt wondered. I mean, do people with amnesia know they have it? Dave faced her. How old are you? Where were you born? What kind of music do you like? What's your favorite sport? What color underwear are you wearing? Britt would normally have blushed at that one, but was too confused to care. I still know all those things. Or do you really want me to answer? I have all my memory, Dave said, except for the last five minutes. Less than that, Rob said, and checked his watch. The digital readout was blank. My watch stopped, he said, and neither of them doubted it. What happened in there? Britt asked, and fear was dancing around the edges of her voice. Rob took that one. We were exploring... We split up? He turned to Dave. Why did we split up? I don't know. People are stupid, I guess. Rob went on. We split up, and though it was light in there, it felt dark somehow. It felt dark? Dave asked. Yeah, 
Rob looked at Britt. Didn't it? She nodded. I was pretty scared to begin with. I don't know if you guys could tell. We could, we could tell. tell, they both said together. It would have been funny if they weren't so confused. Rob went on. But I was getting scareder. It was like there was a train approaching the station, and I knew it was getting closer, even though I couldn't hear it or see it. A fear train. Again, under normal circumstances, the others would have made fun of such a stupid concept as a fear train. But because of what had just happened, they said nothing. The train was... It was almost there. Just a minute away, you know? I wanted to get out. I needed a drink of water. I wanted... He didn't finish that sentence either. It probably would have been, I wanted my mother, which he didn't dare utter. But worse, it might have been, I wanted my mommy. I wanted to run away, he said at last. I felt the same way, Britt whispered. I felt like a little kid again. Dave nodded. He didn't want to sound like a chicken, but he agreed wholeheartedly. He glanced back at the house, which seemed even uglier than before, if that was possible. Rob finished by looking at Britt, biting his lip. And then I heard you scream. Britt didn't remember screaming. But there was something familiar about it now, something that played at the edge of her memories like a mischievous cartoon character. What did you see, Brett? Dave wanted to know. You were freaking out, saying, oh my God, and shit. Brett had begun to breathe heavier. I was? She almost didn't want to believe it. She was strictly an oh my gosh sort of person. But thinking back, she had experienced pretty much exactly what Rob had described, a growing feeling of unease and danger, something closing in, creeping up and then nothing. I don't remember what I saw. Dave was frustrated, but mostly with himself. Why couldn't he remember? He had seen it too, hadn't he? A pair of heavy raindrops fell onto Britt's shoulders, and she realized it had been lightly sprinkling the whole time they'd been out there. Britt still held her backpack, but her flashlight, and the one Rob had held so tight, was gone. She didn't care. Let's go home, she said. Dave nodded. His throat felt funny. Maybe he had been screaming. In front of them, the gate still sat closed and locked, but there was an opening not far from it in the fence boards. Britt felt blind they had missed it, going out of their way to climb over the fence not even an hour before. All three of them squeezed their way through the boards, this time it was easy, and only Dave had to really push himself through it, catching the back of his shirt on it, ruining the already dirty material, but not tearing it, and emerged on the other side. Immediately, Britt felt safer. She didn't know if her tomahawk readers would buy it, but there was something wrong inside the Lemley house, and it was good to be away from it. She felt like she had narrowly avoided catastrophe, pain, death, or worse. And though she didn't know how they had gotten away from it, she wanted to kiss Dave and Robin.
The afternoon was cold, colder than it had been in the last week, and Britt wished she had brought a jacket. They walked in silence, for the most part, each trying to sort out their memories and conflicting emotions. They came to the corner of Champion Avenue and Goodall Boulevard, where Britt would turn right and the boys would turn left. Before they went their separate ways, Rob asked, "'What are you going to put in your article?' "'I don't know.' Now they were blocks away from the house. She was already feeling better about things. "'Don't suppose you took any thousand-word pictures?' It wasn't really a question, but Rob shook his head anyway. He had taken one of the house when they'd arrived, and the one of Britt and Dave downstairs. "'Tell everything,' Dave suggested. "'Let the people that read it make up their own minds.' Brick considered it, then sighed. I doubt anyone will believe me. Dave shrugged. Don't worry about it. If they know you at all, they'll know you don't lie. Brit smiled at that. It was one of the nicest things Dave Earl had ever said to her. Come on, Dave. Can't you see how perfect we are for each other? She thought. I hope you'll wake up and realize that someday. Dave looked at her picking up on the fact that she was about to say something, and impatient to get moving. Someday, Britt thought. Just not yet. Okay, she said. Thanks, you guys. Let's get together and talk about this tomorrow. Sure, Rob said, a little too eager. Dave only nodded, then turned and headed for home. Rob saw him go, took a couple of steps after him, then turned back to Britt. Hey, are you all right for sure? I mean, if you want me to... It took a full second for him to get any sound to come out of his mouth. Not a pleasant phenomenon. Walk you home or something? Britt did dread the thought of going home alone, even though it wasn't even near to dark. But she wouldn't tell Rob that. She didn't know why exactly, but that's how she felt. Nah... I'm cool, she said, trying to sound like Dave. She did a pretty good job, too. So she added, But thanks, though. Okay, Rob said, rocking on his feet like a little boy who had to go to the bathroom. Britt looked at him and felt a fuzziness in the bottom of her stomach, the sort of feeling she got when she saw a Malamute puppy or a particularly happy baby. Rob, she said, I appreciate it. Rob opened his mouth, then closed it again. He, too, said nothing as he turned toward home. Britt would have preferred to have someone walk her home, it turned out. The longer she walked alone, the more her mind went back to that house, to the way she had felt inside it, to the cold, sickening fear that had come over her right before... right before she was out of the house. What had happened... What had she seen? What had been in that damned old house? She'd seen movies and TV shows about people who saw things so horrible they blocked them out of their memories. Murders, abuse, alien abduction. And that possibility didn't make her feel any better. Reaching her block, she had to fight an urge to break into a run. Her hands were tight fists at her sides. As she unclenched them, she realized they were unusually dirty. Was that grime? Dust? 
something worse? Gross. What would she write about this experience? Would Mr. Blocker buy her explanation, or think she made it up? And her teacher would surely be wondering why they hadn't cleared it with him beforehand. Britt could handle a chew-out by a parent or a teacher, but Rob would take it badly. The wrong word from Blocker would make Rob even less confident in his abilities than he already was. He barely seemed capable of making his own decisions as it stood, the poor kid. Britt made it to her house and started up the walk. The grass on the lawn was almost completely dead, she noticed. She had just been thinking about what a mild fall they were having, too. As depressing as the onset of winter was, there were more important things on her mind to keep her occupied. The front door was locked. She scowled and tried the knob again, but it was securely fastened. It wasn't a huge deal, but it wasn't the norm. Even when Mom had gone somewhere, she'd leave the front door open for the kids after school. It was one of the daily facets of small-town life. But there was Mom's gray cabriolet, sitting in the driveway, as it always was. Britt rang the doorbell, feeling the chill in the air that seemed to have sprung up in the last half hour. If it started to rain in earnest, and she was stuck out here, it would be the perfect end to a decidedly unpleasant day. Finally, however, the front door came unlocked, and Britt's mother pulled it open. When she saw her daughter there, she gasped, her hand going up to her mouth. Mom? Britt said, her stomach tightening at the sight of her. She looked thin, pale, sickly. Mom, what's wrong? Britt took a shocked step back as she heard her mother scream. All right, so that's where we're going to let, let let off, leave off. That's where we're going to press the brakes. Do we press them or do we push them? Does anybody say depress the brakes? Speaking of the gray sky, I'm pretty depressed right now. So, New Year's Day, it's not done, so we won't really talk about the story proper yet. But I will talk about the three main characters. They are Dave, Britt, and Rob. And those three characters are named after people that I worked with. I worked at this store called Media Play. And Media Play was a big entertainment store. I guess like the probably the best comparison is there's still a store called FYE for your entertainment here. And they have books, they have movies, they have music, and they have video games. FYE has a buttload of toys now just because the adult collector industry is a much bigger one, I think, than the music industry now. But I went there, I remember I, I, the store opened, I want to say in 95, and I went there when it first opened and I spent like three hours in the store just like looking at books, looking at CDs. I was not a video game guy. I looked at movies a little bit. In those days, it was VHS. And being able to buy VHS tapes was still relatively recent. It was something that people were starting to do. If you were a diehard movie fan, you bought Laserdiscs. But Laserdiscs were prohibitively expensive 
they're huge. It was not really for my generation. It was more for the people a little older than me or people who were wealthy. There was already this idea in the air that there was going to be this thing like, you know, the digital video discs, digital versatile discs, you know, stuff like that, that that was coming. It hadn't yet happened. But I thought, gosh, if I could work anywhere, this is where I would want to work. And uh, I put in an application and I got to come in for an interview and they were, I, I think they were impressed by how enthusiastic I was about the store. And they said, wow, really? And I said, yeah, I come here, I think every Tuesday or something like that. I would come there and I would just stay for hours. They would have books that I couldn't afford, but I would like leaf through them and read them and stuff. Yeah. And they said, well, where would you like to work? And I said, yeah, I, I think video would be my favorite because I'm a movie buff. I really like movies. They said, oh, we don't have any openings in the video section. And I said, oh, okay. I said, we, we've got openings in the video game section and in the music section. And I said, I really don't know anything about video games, but I'm pretty knowledgeable about music. And they said, are you? Okay, who sings? They, they gave me like three questions, each one from a different genre. Who sings Sweet Child O' Mine? And I said, that's Guns N' Roses, off of Appetite for Destruction. They're like, wow, okay. Who sings forever and ever, amen? And I said, oh, uh, that's Randy Travis. I said, oh, but you don't know the album? No, I, I don't. Sorry, do I not get the job? And they said, okay, who sings I Can't Get No Satisfaction? I said, oh, Rolling Stones. They're like, wow, okay. Yeah, it sounds like you, you know your stuff. And I said, oh, who sings Cats in the Cradle? And the guy goes, uh, geez, I don't know. Cat Stevens? I said, no. And he goes, who? I said, I was asking you. I, I, I know that song, but I can never remember who sings it. And he said, well, let me look on my phone 25 years from now. Oh, it's Harry Chapin. And so I got the job and I was in music at first. And anytime somebody, people would call. I kid you not. They would call the store to ask, hey, who sings The Promise? And I'd say, oh, the promise, how does it go? And they'd go, I'm sorry, but I was just thinking of the right words to say. Yeah, it was an old Irishman. I know they don't sound the way I plan them to be. And I said, yeah, that's when in Rome. They would always have me get the phone whenever it was one of these calls about who sings something. And for the, I, one of my coworkers was the first female, the first girl, the first woman who liked Star Wars I ever met. I was astounded that a girl liked Star Wars. And yeah, Renee Chambliss is, is, you know, like my paragon of female Star Wars fandom. And she claims that there were tons of girl Star Wars fans when she was growing up. That was not my experience. This girl, and I don't remember her name because I didn't write a story with her in it. She really loved Star Wars and she loved the John Williams scores and she could tell me like the names of all the tracks and I was really impressed by this it's it's a shame that I didn't like you know ask her out or something but she helped me appreciate the John Williams music more I mean I already had I already loved it but there was this big box set that came out of the trilogy and then like a bonus disc with outtakes and you know 
extras. And uh, I had to save up to buy it because CDs were so expensive in those days. Everything was so expensive except for a gallon of gas. I feel like this whole episode has been me rambling, me going off the beaten path, stopping talking about what I'm supposed to be talking about. But I'm talking about media play. Um, the manager of the music section was an asshole. And I'm sure he was like 27, 28 years old, which is so young, but he was older than me. And he was just a stick in the mud. He was so humorless. And, and I, I'm not a good employee. I guess I'm one of those guys that feels like I know better than the people around me or the, the rules don't apply to me. If you've ever known people like that, they're, they're terrible to work with. And I think I've always been that guy. Because A, I knew more about music than he did. You know, he said, who sings Take On Me? And I said, uh, sing it for me. How does that go? He's like, you don't know Take On Me? I said, Take On Me by AHA? Yeah, sing it for me. I'm not gonna sing it. It's like, sorry, I always make people sing it. I'm your boss. So I didn't like working for this guy. And I don't think I ever was in any danger of being fired by him. But that, that may not be true. But as soon as an opening, as soon as there was an opening in video, I switched over to video. And they'd still like have me answer music questions from time to time or somebody called in sick can you do music and I would I think I did one shift in the book department one time just like putting away books and I didn't like their system because they'd have like mystery science fiction western romance and then they had fiction and I'd be like oh well where does Charles Dickens Tale of Two Cities go classics like really oh classics is its own section okay but what about dracula is there a horror section now that goes in fiction the only uh department i never worked in was video games but anyhow i i started working in video and that was really fun and it's going to sound like a broken record but the supervisor the the manager of the video department i didn't get along with much either. Her name was Trudy and she was probably also like 25, 26 years old, but seemed older, you know, she I, I, older than me. I, you know, she, she just didn't like the way I did things and would get after me for little things. And before long, this guy started working in the same department and he was super lazy and he was like a handsome, like surfer type dude. And he would just come on his shift to slack off. And I had had in those days a really strong work ethic. So I would work pretty hard trying, you know, one of those things where, and I, it's just what I was taught from a young age is, you know, if you see something that needs doing, go ahead and do it. Don't wait for somebody to tell you, hey, you need to fix this or you need to clean that up. Just do it. And this guy was not that way at all. And I, I didn't like him. And I made the mistake <laughs> of complaining to Trudy about him. And she's like, ha ha, that's very funny. And I said, what? 
She says, you asked where I found him? Ha ha. And I said, well, no, I just, wait, why is that funny? And this guy, the surfer dude was her brother and she had gotten him the job. And of course he was never gonna get fired no matter what, because his sister was the manager and I couldn't work with this guy. And so I said, well, maybe you shouldn't schedule the two of us together. And she's like, oh really, you can't get along with my brother? Everybody gets along with my brother. And so <laughs> anytime he was working and his name is on the tip of my tongue, I see his face. He was a good looking guy. And now that I think about it, he and Trudy looked very similar. They had the same build, the same color hair. I can't remember his name. Whenever she had scheduled him a shift, I didn't get to work that day because I had made a stink about him not pulling his weight. So I ended up on those days, I usually went to music again and worked for that manager that I didn't get along with. And I can't remember his name. I just don't get along with people. I am not a good employee. I, I missed my calling, which is to be a writer, but I don't write and I don't sell my writing. I'm sorry. Now I'm melancholy. It's this gray sky, dude. So I was not really enjoying the department. But then I think the holidays were coming up. And so suddenly they hired a bunch of new people. And I could be remembering this totally wrong. 1995 was a long time ago. But they hired some new people. One of them, God, I see their faces in my head too. And I wouldn't be surprised if I named characters after them as well. There were these two best friends. They were teenage girls and they were inseparable. They had to work together. And maybe it was, they were also roommates and there was only one car between them, but it was, they were inseparable and that was irritating. Uh, but they hired a dude who was an aspiring actor named Dave. They hired like sort of a burnout guy who had been in the, uh, in the army and he, he was done with that and he just needed a job to pass the time and his name was Rob. And then they hired a girl who had just moved to town from Canada named Britt. And through the haze of memory, the four of us hit it off really, really well and became friendly. We started doing things outside of work. But anytime I had a shift in video and it was with Dave or it was with Rob or it was with Britt, I was happy. It was like, oh, great. Yeah. And I had not had a friend who was a girl in a while. Anyway, Dave was a, an actor and he had this dream of going off to Los Angeles and, you know, trying out acting and becoming a big star. And he had this girlfriend who was really attractive and young and she had the same dream. He was working at Media Place, saving up money so that he could go to LA and pursue his dreams. And he was gonna take his girlfriend with him and they were gonna make it happen. He was the one that told me about like being an extra. And he told me, you know, who's actually gay in Hollywood. He was a stand-in for this actor named Vincent Gallo. And he told me what a stand-in did. 
Dave knew all about how film production worked. You know, he really influenced me in my decision to, hey, maybe I should try and be an extra. And uh, Britt was the first Canadian that I ever knew, and she would tell me about the differences between our two, our two disparate cultures. And Britt had a really beautiful younger sister who was blonde, and Britt was skinny and had like the, I don't know if you say mousy brown hair. Guys were always hitting on her sister, even when her sister would come into the store to like visit. And I know that that really upset Britt because she was smart and she was cool and fun. And I got along great with her. But yeah, like her sister was the bee's knees. And I don't know that I've ever written about that dynamic. In My Friend of Misery, the main character is totally jealous of her younger brother. But it's not the same thing of being sort of a plain Jane and having a hot younger sister. Anyhow, it was cool because I, I could talk to Brit about stuff. It was always neat when I was young to have a friend who was from a different place or a different background or different ethnicity or different religion or had webbed toes or, you know, was a girl because I could ask their perspective on things. I could ask what it was like growing up with webbed feet and with gills and those little weird fin things on your back that help you navigate in the ocean. Rob had a pager. This was pre-cell phone days, and he had a pager. And anytime you wanted to talk to Rob, you would dial the number of his pager, and it would ask you to type your telephone number in, and you'd do it, and he would find a payphone, and he would call. I know this is old days. It probably sounds like ancient history, if any young people listen to my show. But it just that pager thing was really exciting and um, exotic. So eventually I did stop working at that job. And I, I don't know if it was strife I had with Trudy that made me leave. I didn't get fired for once. But I, yeah, I just remember being frustrated at the job. You probably have experienced this where I, you know, I, I was more competent. I felt like then the people that I was working with or, you know, with Trudy, I definitely knew more about movies than she did. And, I, you know, we'd have people come in and they say, yeah, oh, you know, there's this movie. The plot is sort of like this. And I usually could name what it was. And she couldn't, but in retrospect, that doesn't mean I was a better employee than her. A manager would want somebody like that on their team, but that doesn't mean that I was a good employee or I was manager material. But yeah, I, I had a chance to work somewhere else for more money, and so I, I, I took that and I left. But I regretted it because of the friendship that I had with those guys. And I think Dave had already left. He got enough money, went off to California, and I did go visit him. I went to LA and he took me to the touristy places and told me all sorts of fun 
stories about people that he had run into. And we went to a taping of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, which was unique. That was really cool. I never, I, I never went to The Tonight Show again. It was just that one time. There are things that, I, that you do as a tourist that I guess you don't do when you're a native or a resident, I guess is the word that they use. But I lost track of, of Dave. And from time to time, I would look him up on the IMDb, hoping that, you know, I'd see that he had made it a, a life for himself, that he had, he had a career. And I never found him. I never saw him on there. Knowing me, I probably would have been immensely jealous if I had found him on the IMDb. But oh well. Rob ended up getting a girlfriend, uh, and it was kind of serious, and, and he started spending all of his time with her. And if we wanted to do stuff, it would be me and him and his girlfriend, and that didn't really work out. And then Britt was going off to school at some point, and she took off, and I remember we wrote back and forth a couple of times, but, you know, that's that. I ended up seeing her a couple of years ago, uh, and she had a family, she had kids. I guess that's what a family is. She lived happily ever after, I would hope. I think, I think that's the point. But anyway, when I moved out to LA and I, I wrote this story, I decided to name, not only name the characters after these guys, but, I, I, but in some ways they're sort of based on them as well. And I guess that's all I gotta say about that. I, you know, the, the, the idea, the, the, the central conceit of the story of somebody, somebody goes into a haunted house and when they come back, a that's how this story began, I think. Is I just, I liked that idea of what would happen. How do you just pick up your life and go forward? I don't know. I think there probably is enough for a novel in this idea. I'm just not a novelist. But I appreciate you coming with me on the first segment of this journey. And uh, I hope that uh, you will join me the next installment and that you uh, have enjoyed uh, at least some of New Year's Day. And um, thank you for listening. I am Rish Outfield. And I want to be with you. Be with you night and day. Nothing changes on New Year's Day. The music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod, whose shenanigans can be found over at Incompetech.com. The Rish Outcast just happens to be produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license, which makes it free to listen to, share, and poke fun at. But the podcast cannot be altered or sold. If you didn't completely despise this episode, why don't you support the show with our Patreon fund over at patreon.com if you'd like to throw a dollar or two my way. Have a nice night. And I... I will begin again, and I, I will begin again.
Here's for the young ones who came here to dance. Damn it. Michael tried to wipe any. Michael tried to wipe any guilty looks away from his fat. Michael tried to wit. Michael tried to wipe any guilty looks away from his face. It's come here, not came here. 